This episode is powered by denmeditation.com with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal. I am your host, and I'm the founder of Den Meditation. Today, we have Sharon Salzberg on the podcast. This, for me, is a pinch-me-please moment. Now, who is she? She's one of the handful of people who are responsible for bringing meditation to the West with a modern and secular approach to Buddhism. She's been teaching since 1974. She's a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and it's still thriving, and is a New York Times bestselling author. And you guys, she's currently working on book number 11. That's insane. We get into her journey on how she found herself in what back then is perceived as a completely rarefied and weird world, but yet how it became her life's work. She's known for her expertise in loving kindness, and we really dive deep into what it means to love yourself and others, and how love is a muscle and skill we can all cultivate and how meditation is a relationship with yourself that you need to have faith in. We talk about where justice falls into play when you're asked to forgive and how can we live in a place from loving kindness if in society has so many layers and points of view that sometimes it's hard to tolerate. She's always been known for being unbelievably relatable and making these teachings practical. And I promise you, she does not disappoint in this conversation. We talk about many things we can all do to cultivate our attention in a positive way, making our day-to-day much more pleasant. It's such an honor to talk to her and pick her brain. I mean, it's almost 50 years of knowledge. So sit back, get comfortable, and just soak it all in. I am so thrilled to have you here. I can't, I mean, we're sitting in the den as we speak, and... This wouldn't exist if it wasn't for you, honestly, because you are literally part of a small group of people who really brought meditation to the West. And so for that, I'm not only indebted to all these amazing books you've written and all these people you've helped, but just specifically for me, I mean, so much of this is because of you, whether you like it or not. I'm sure there are some (laughs) ways this has kind of grown that you're like, "Eh." but I mean, really this, you know, the industry has taken such a turn and the fact that it's even called an industry, I'm sure for you is so crazy because you were part of the beginning. But I want to rewind a little bit and just talk about kind of meditation a little more broadly. One of the things you said in one of your books was that early in the books you talked about how, you know, in the beginning you always kind of looked at meditation as like achieving bliss and how you can achieve it. And then all of a sudden it switched and you realized it wasn't about achieving bliss. It was just kind of about being and being able to navigate the hard times. So can you talk about that a little bit more? And was there relief in that? Uh, yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I'm very happy to be here. Oh, this, is, good. this is great, thank you. Um, I think my my uh, vision was even a little more narrow than that. I had this notion, I don't even know where I got it, <laughs> that uh, good meditation meant sitting bathed in brilliant white light. And I didn't have any white light. Um, I had some really lovely experiences that I just discounted because they weren't white light. I had some really painful experiences that were very important that I also discounted because they weren't white light. And um, it's sort of the heart essence of uh, mindfulness as a particular method that you're really not seeking a certain state because all states are changing anyway. Um, you know, maybe, and certainly a lot is accessible. You know, we live really on the surface of things. And so uh, there's tremendous altered states of consciousness and bliss and all kinds of things that are available, but they don't last, you know. So then uh, if we don't 
see things in a certain way, then we just cling and we suffer, you know, like, you know, where was my right eyebrow when I had that state of bliss? If I just scrunched my face a little bit, you know, it'll come back. It's not like that, you know, so. But also you're talking about this white light and what I thought was interesting, what you just said is you discounted some beautiful experiences, but you also discounted the really hard ones, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I think is so easy because I think to do, but I think so many people sit down and like you said, expect something beautiful, zen-like, and then when they are getting the hard ones, and in some ways that's kind of what meditation does. It really does uncover some of the shit you have to mm-hmm. deal with. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like the fact that people sit down for the first time or in the beginning of their journey, and it might be a little uncomfortable. Well, it certainly might be, because it, it's just a reflection of life. It's not only uncomfortable, um, but you know we go up and down, and, and there are lots of places in between in and, and any ordinary day, and so that's what it's like when we sit. And uh, you could say that mindfulness is a relational quality. It's not actually about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. <laughs> and so um, with those beautiful and lovely and delightful experiences, we might have a kind of conditioning where we kind of resist them a little bit. We don't actually let them in either. And so part of that unwinding is being able to be with what's really beautiful in the present moment, let it in without projecting, how am I going to keep it? How am I going to keep it from changing? But really just appreciate it in the moment. And with painful experience, which definitely will come because it's a part of life, uh, whether physically painful or emotionally painful, um, you know, we can have a painful experience and add to it a lot of distressing things, you know, um, resistance, fear, hatred, blame, shame, and isolation, all kinds of things which only make it worse. Or we can have that painful experience almost in a an environment we have cultivated of compassion, of kindness, and it's a very different experience, even though the pain is the same. And then there's everything in between. Just a breath, just a moment, you know, an ordinary cup of tea, no special, you know, creamer, like, you know, (laughs) just like, all right, this again. The things that are patterns, repeated, you know, routine, where we tend to go to sleep. Um, You know, we miss those, too. We miss out on being alive in those, too. And so mindfulness is a quality of being different with the pleasure, with the pain, and with the neutrality. And it's all important. You know, none of it is like, oh, my meditation's taking the wrong turn. It's all important. Well, I think you kind of, you talk a little bit about um, the right effort. And is that in some ways, because I, I, I know it's in Buddhism, is that almost like you start your path just by even trying? Just by trying? Like by even setting a goal of like, or not even a goal, or the desire to even want to take the steps in the journey in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I think inevitably, because it's not nothing. It's easier to stay in bed, you know? Absolutely. you got to get up. you got to sit somehow or walk or, you know, whatever the form is. You have to show up somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it inevitably involves a goal, and I don't think that's wrong. The question is, do we misuse the goal? Like, I was using, first of all, it was a weird goal. You know, that was a wrong goal. Brilliant white light is totally relevant. But <laughs> uh, even apart from that, you know... Um, you can use the goal as a way of punishing yourself like every second checking and evaluating and judging, you know, and, and right. it's not really onward leading. It's almost like you have to form the goal and just let it go and just do the thing. And for some people, let's say if a goal is like 
make more money, things like that, they could just be sorely disappointed. They might be. I mean, if, if you're working with a teacher, you're working with somebody who's, who's guiding you, it, I would think it would almost be a question of um, looking at that goal and going deeper within it. You know, because we say we want a lot of money. Many of us would say that. But we don't really want piles of cash everywhere, right? <laughs> the money represents something to us, like freedom, security, leisure time. Um, are there other ways of having that same achievement without piles and piles of money? I don't know. But usually, in a way, we almost define our, our definition of happiness is too small. We'll talk about that, what a definition of happiness looks like in a small form and then in a large form. Well, there would be an example. The small form is a lot of money. And the large form is, um, I want to be confident. You know, I want to I feel like I can, I'm resourceful. I can take care of things. I can take care of people. But for some people, could the large form actually be scarier than the small form? Because it seems like the small form can sometimes look very tangible. Like, if this comes, then I will be more confident. If this comes, I will feel that. So it's sometimes putting the idea in the larger form, almost, again, putting a lot of faith into kind of the unknown. Well, I think it gives us options. I mean, I agree. Yeah. I think, you know, and without a sense of options, when it's very, very particular... Um, it's almost like we're disempowered, I think, because we're turning too much over to someone else. You know, like, how much is enough money? That changes, And is it right? ever enough, right. And is it ever enough? And where do you live? And, uh, you know, what is the rent cost? And what are your other needs? And, you know, what if um, someone else gets a raise and you don't? You know, and, and suddenly it feels like all is lost, but really is all lost? I don't know. Right. Because then you just have a value system around you at all times. Yeah, yeah. And you're up and down just at the mercy of whatever those goals are. Yeah. Yeah. What about, I mean, you have this quote in Real Happiness, which I love from William James. My experience is what I agree to attend to. I love that so much because I do feel like there's this interesting duality of meditation, which is like you meditate and it really is kind of about losing the I and the me and becoming part of a greater whole. But at the same time, there's a lot of self-responsibility in meditation or in this growth in this journey. So I love that quote because I feel like it is a direct correlation on how one navigates the world, like where you choose to put your attention towards. Are you, and you talk obviously so much about this, mm-hmm. but do you put your attention towards the positive things or towards the negative and then watch what grows? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like we get a lot in you know, places like this, and I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast is sick of me saying it, but you know, people come in for the magic fix. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, I sat down and meditate, so now all my problems are going to be solved. And we're always like, no, no, no. Like you, as a human, have to do your own work too. And you have to, like you were just saying earlier, you have to face some of those hard things that might come up when you meditate and also embrace the good things. And mm-hmm. it is a relationship with yourself mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well as you know, your meditation. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, like placing your attention somewhere, but also the negative. Like what's the difference of not placing your attention on the negative and not dwelling on it, but then again, not absorbing it either and processing it? Well, language is so interesting, you know. It's like um, <clears throat> the states, um, well, there's so many levels to this. First of all, there's a difference between like feeling anger, for example, and being overcome by anger, right. you know? Um, so that's a difference right there. And even when you're overcome by anger, sometimes we call that negative. A, a more drilled down way of using language would be to call it painful. 
Mm-hmm. It's unskillful, which in, in the Buddhist context means that which is suffering and leads to more suffering. You know, when we call it negative, a, as one does, I mean, it's a very common translation. But yeah. I love that, that yeah. you're switching a label, yeah. which yeah. is like you can get better at this. You can get better at whatever is causing suffering. That's right. Versus That's right. it just sucks. That's right. And I suck because right. I'm experiencing it, which is what we usually do. So, you know, ways that that would be translated as like the destructive emotions or the defilements, even worse, or negative emotion. You know, that's like your, your use of language was totally appropriate, but it's also consequential. Mm-hmm. And a more accurate term, again, within the Buddhist context, would be unskillful. So what does unskillful means? It means that thing about suffering. And it's a different feeling, right? Like when you're looking at your anger and you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm a mess. This is a terrible state. I'm here again. It's very different than, oh, this really hurts. You know, this is... Um, so that's one of the first things we do is we try to reframe our experience of our own fear and anger and greed and jealousy and all of those things. Um, and it makes a difference. As, as you feel, like, not rejection, but a kind of warmth of compassion that, that can come up. Just by language. Just by language. And it's attitude. It's the yeah. way we're holding it. Um, you know, so uh, we cannot control what arises in our minds. And that's just a, a basic tenet of coming to understand our own minds. We can affect it. You know, we can uh, change conditions. But when conditions come together... Something will arise. It's like you cannot fairly or justly say to yourself, you'll never be afraid again, or you've grieved long enough, you know, you're done, or you'll never fall asleep meditating again because <laughs> if conditions come together. And you can affect those conditions. Like I said, maybe you don't have to have like a steak dinner before you sit down. You know, right. or, um, but, you know, someday, uh, for whatever reason, and there are many reasons, you're going to fall asleep. You know, some of these people get very sleepy in meditation because something painful is about to come up, and that's their habit. Like, let's just take a nap. You know, where things are very even, they're they're kind of like boring almost. They're they're not, you're not very high, not very low. And here too, we have strong conditioning about just checking out. You know, it's like we get numb. Right. We go to sleep. There's lots of reasons why sleepiness may arise, and you cannot control them all. And so, um. That's an important point, but it's something that almost no one lives by. You know, it's like we, we punish ourselves. We're so angry at ourselves. Like, you got angry again. You spent all that money in therapy. and You're still, you know, you know <laughs> angry. And like, how dare you? Instead of like kind of marshalling our energy and asking, how am I going to relate to this? Okay, the anger came up. Can I be with it? Even that very strong anger, almost like a storm moving through. Or do I have to take it to heart and say, I'm such an angry person, I always will be? And do I have to plot revenge for the next 40 hours? You know, do I have to... Right. You know, or can it really just, like, pass through? And it's a totally different experience, even though the intensity of the anger is the same. It's true, because you do see some people that are either really angry or do things that they're ashamed of. It's very hard to get out of that cycle. It's almost like they do more asshole things because it's like their way of punishing themselves or making mm-hmm. themselves, so, it's like, I don't deserve it, so why? Mm-hmm. It's a tough cycle to get out of and then you yeah. just are piling on all the shit to be upset at yourself yeah. for, so yeah. it's really hard yeah. to break. But And you're saying it just starts with even language. Yeah. So how, in that regard, like, we talk about stories we make up for ourselves and why do you feel like, just as society as a whole, not even just, you know, one person, 
we tend to build the stories a lot on the, on the negative without a lot, for lack of a better word. Like why is that tend to be our building blocks and our foundations? Well, you know, evolutionary psychologists would say that uh, we have a negativity bias, you know, like we're, we live almost as a wired, like we're still in the jungle and that, you know, some predator is going to leap out and eat us. Mm -hmm. and, and so we look for danger, we look for threat. You know, that, that's where our senses are, are, are going to. Um, not every, you know, evolutionary psychologist will say it, but many will. It's sort of the standard response. So that might be part of it, you know. And part of it is just untrained attention. And it's not so much, I don't, I don't think of it so much as moving from the negative to the positive or even from the unskillful to the skillful, but paying attention differently with everything. Because we're also, you know, we're half asleep. We're incredibly busy. We're scattered. We're distracted. Um, we forget how to listen. You know, if you're in a party and talking to a stranger, likelihood is that, unless they're, you know, compelling for some reason. <laughs> I love that that's unless, like as if that's yeah. more rare than common. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like unless they're like, wow, you know, we're thinking about our email, we're thinking about what we need to do, we're thinking about a lot of other things. And um, it's almost the mechanical process in meditation of coming back, bringing your attention back after you've been distracted is the very tool we need in life because we're awfully distracted. And these days, I mean, everybody, um, I love technology personally. Everyone's complaining about it these days. But, you know, I was walking down the streets in New York and somebody was texting and he barged right into me. Because he wasn't looking. Yeah, and I thought, oh, it's like a cartoon, but it really happens, you know, like <laughs> that, you know? And so it's just bringing it back. Yeah. But then with your stories, and so we tend to choose, and I like, I, I really understand and like that answer. Where, because the stories aren't always the ones we tell. It's always sometimes the ones we hear mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. other people, mm -hmm. too, about ourselves. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, having the strength to know. I don't know. I was trying to figure this out, like the truth within yourself. But then what is the truth? Because everyone's story, even the ones you tell yourself, are biased. Do you know what I mean? So, like, what, how can you get to what the essence of the truth is? I think it's, you know, it's probably going to get to be the same answer, whatever you bring up, which is attention. You know, mm -hmm. we, we get a better sense of clarity because we're paying attention. And, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, we're perfect or that we kind of hit it every time, but there's, there's some pretty wild distortions we tend to believe. Like, I'm incapable of doing anything. Right. You know, in a specific sense, it's probably true. I would probably never jump out of an airplane in this life, you know, for a whole number of reasons. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I did a radio show, I don't even know if it's gone up yet, in New York, uh, about, it's like 10 things that scare me. What were they? Well, I, when they first proposed it to me, I thought, I said to them, I don't know if I can think of 10, so because I think they're like hundreds, you know, in the end. But the first one was, I'm afraid of heights, you know. Are you, like, legitimate? Like, yeah, when, yeah. when does that kick in for you? About what floor? Uh, well, I wouldn't like to sit high in a movie theater, for example. Wow, so, okay, yeah, that's, yeah. like, legit. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's definitely legit. And I thought, oh, that was number one. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I will never, you know, there are things I will never do, I'm sure. So when you started the list and all of a sudden it just started pouring out, you're like, oh, shit, like, I'm actually afraid of a lot more things than I realized. I'm afraid so much, you know, like, <laughs> I'm afraid of everything. Um, but there's a, a kind of like, there's a way we can globalize things. Like, I, you know, I'm afraid of everything. I'm incapable of learning a new thing. And it's just not true. Or um, 
So in some ways, what you're saying is like, I have this list that's so long, but it took me actually sitting there to really think about it because none of those things run me. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not aware of them on the day to day because you actually don't let them affect you in that way. Yeah, yeah. But then when you sit down, you're like, oh shit, there's like actually a pretty long list. So yeah. it's the same with all these, like, kind of negative... And it's not to say they're all fixed, you know, and permanent, but... Um, like, I, I could mean, push you out of a plane. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, here's, here's maybe a better example. When I first started teaching meditation, um, it was because one of my teachers had told me to teach. It wasn't a longing I had, you know. Um, and it was very rare in those days. It wasn't, like, a career, you know. Right. And uh, That wasn't a career day in the college. No, like. no. <laughs> And uh, the format of our intensive retreats, which was the only form in which we taught to begin with, because it's how we learned uh, mostly, not exclusively, but it's mostly how we learned in India, um, uh, was that you, you know, there's a group of people and there's a teacher, a number of teachers, and uh, you practice in the morning and there are a few meals and there's a question and answer session with some instruction after breakfast and then people are practicing and meeting individually or in small groups with the teacher. And then at night, there's one discourse. There's just one lecture that's more formal. It lasts about an hour. So uh, the first retreat we taught uh, was Joseph, Joseph Goldstein and I in this Amazing. country. Um, it was a month-long retreat we were invited to teach. So, so you taught for... So you've never taught before. Well, we taught... Uh, we, uh, I came back... Joseph came back at about six months before I did, and... He was teaching um, as Ram Dass' teaching assistant at Amazing. Europa Institute in Boulder, which was, was 1974. It was the first summer that opened. And uh, Joseph was so popular, he was invited to stay on for the second session. Uh, so I stayed on with him, and I was like his teaching assistant. So we were teaching classes and right. you know, individually, and that was fine, but... I was absolutely panicked about public speaking. I was going to say, were you, I mean, if you'd never taught before, and I know at that point you were very learned, I mean, you'd been meditating and studying for a long time, but still, there is something different about standing up and teaching. Yeah, yeah. Did you even know what you wanted to teach about? Like, did it all of a sudden feel like, I know these are stupid questions, but do you know how sometimes it's like you're studying and you think you know everything, and then you go up to teach and you feel like you know nothing? You're like, well, who am I the one to teach? Well, that's how I felt all along, but... um, I'd been practicing and studying for about three years. It was only because my teacher had told me that I wouldn't. And she said, you're going to go back and teach. And I said, no, I'm not. You know, and she said, yes, you are. I said, um, she said, yes, you are. And, of course, she was right. And so I just couldn't do... I felt fine, you know, talking to people individually. I had, uh, you know, a lot of experience by then. I had a lot of faith in the, in the methods and ways that helped me and... Um, so I and I was very young. I was twenty one, and everyone was older than I was, which was a little Isn't that weird. Interesting, but, you know. Uh, that was okay, but the formal lecture could not do it. So how was your first one? It was a long time later because Joseph and I. <laughs> you just refused a, to do it. I, I refused to do it. So when, after you started like teaching, did you do your first lecture? I would say close to a year, probably. What was the subject? Well, <laughs> it was. This is how it went. We we got invited to teach this month-long retreat, which meant every night Joseph had to give oh. a talk, and I just could not do it. And he's and like, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I was petrified, and uh, all these people were going up and yelling at him and saying, why won't you let her have a voice? Why won't you let her <gasps> That's speak? amazing. They thought he was keeping you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he said, I'd love a night off. You know, tell her. Talk to her. Wait, that's so... I love that he was getting, like, slammed for, like, not letting you grow. <laughs> I couldn't do it. And then... Uh, 
a long time later, I thought, what I was afraid of was that I'd be speaking and my mind would go totally blank and I'd just sit there. That's and everyone would know. So, uh, And then I thought, you know, there is this other practice, like a parallel practice called loving kindness. And there's a guided meditation that goes with it. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I could give a talk on that because if I'm up there and my mind goes completely blank, I'll just launch into the guided meditation. Maybe no one will notice, you know, that unfortunate little interval. And so then I, I thought, okay, okay, I can give a talk on loving kindness. So that was the first topic that I, I could speak on. So it's almost on. like you had to give yourself loving kindness yeah, in yeah. order to do it. Yeah. So how was it? Were you it was fine. Of, I, of course, I was scared, but I could do it, you know, which is what I mean by not all fears are rigid and forever, you know. Um, and then a long time went by, and I thought, you know what? No one's really sitting here. They just want to have a connection. No one's sitting here waiting for me to impart my brilliance or anything like that, you know. We're just connecting here. And then I thought, every talk is sort of like a loving kindness talk. But when did that realization come up for you? That was also some months later. You know, and do you know so why? Like, was there something specific, or did it just kind of surface? I think it just sort of surfaced, like, I, you know, because I was doing it. I was actually actively giving talks. And I could see the experience, you know, like, and, and feel it for what, for what it was. Were there <laughs> ever times that you felt like, you know, you know, I know in every different lineage there's, you know, different ways of saying it, that you just felt so connected that things were coming out of your mouth you didn't even plan or think about that mm -hmm. kind of surprised you later? All the time. I mean, every, every time I write, which is every day, um, I don't use notes mostly when I speak. Do you often plan what you're going to say when you go speak? I think about it. You know, I think... Uh, like on the way there or like, a, like months probably. ahead? Or just on the way there, yeah. yeah. Not months ahead. So you just kind of give it like a little bit of an overview. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise... But I that's because of the topics, you know, that I'm choosing to speak about. If I was... I mean, there's some very um, kind of abstract points in Buddhist philosophy, for example. If I was talking about one of those, I'd prepare... Right. You know, I'd really study up. <laughs> like something that you feel like you're not as certain of. Yeah. Well, yeah, or that I need to remember there are, you know, 12 of these or, you know. Yeah. What about, so on that note, with all the different lineages and spirituality, religion, like what is the overlap for you of all of this, meditation in and of itself? Yeah, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. I'd gone to India. I was 18. Um, it was sort of like my junior year abroad and... It took me a while to find what I was looking for, which was something very practical and direct. And, and that was really what he offered. It was in the form of this intensive 10-day retreat. And the first night, his first lecture, he said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. This is in no way about becoming a Buddhist or rejecting anything else. or um, you know, it, It's about the power of your own awareness and cultivating that. And, and that was like my first night, you know, so... It's always been the foundation of how I saw things. And um, I completely applauded people like John Kabat-Zinn when he took the methodology and relanguaged it all in terms of science. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be attached to a belief system. It shouldn't really be attached to a belief system. Whether it's attached to the methods of meditation or attached to looking at your life as a whole is another question. Right. But... Um, you know, so I, I've never had that kind of association, like, oh, you have to be Buddhist or you have to, you know, whatever. And uh, so I, I really do think the, the practices stand apart. And um, they do involve not just a, a mechanical act, you know, of like bringing your attention back, but looking 
I don't know if critically is the right word, but looking honestly at everything. You know, there's so many things we assume. You talk about the stories people tell us. There's so many things we're taught about where happiness is, is to be found and where strength is and how alone we are and how we have to put people down in order to get ahead. And, you know, we take a look at those things. It's it's a pretty intense act to really step away from one's conditioning and pay attention that deeply and that honestly. And um, there's a lot of upheaval there, you know. Uh, it's not all smooth sailing. And so, and that's good. As far as, and I want to talk a little more about the spirituality, but as far as people kind of unconditioning themselves, I guess, or releasing old conditions, is it a different emotional and physical process for everyone or are there certain signs or certain things that everyone who does go through that process kind of feels? Because I imagine if, if, if you're really removing deep conditioning of something, there's got to be a period of free-falling, you know, mm -hmm, if you're just mm -hmm. looking at it as something. And so, like, what does that look like or what does it feel like or how does that manifest? Well, I think some people would say, I mean, there, there are, you know, texts written about kind of a map, you know. Um, it's more about um, insight. I think the, the universal characteristics we experience that we see very directly are more about universal insights, you know, so that everything's changing all of the time, that you can't successfully hold on to anything. What you, what vehicle you see that through will always change, you right. know. But that's what we see. We see that we're all connected. We see the truth of interconnection, that it's not just a nice thing to say. Um, it's not even always a nice experience. But, right. <laughs> you know, but but we are all connected. And, and so... Um, those things, I think, are universal, and we come to them. There, there are periods of uneasiness, certainly, because uh, you recognize how much things are changing and how the, the witness or the viewer is also changing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like there's this solid spot and everything's changing around. It's like everything is changing. Constantly. And, you know, and, and so that... Uh, it doesn't always feel bad, but there, there are times when it feels glorious, and... It's almost like you're tuning into change as you see things begin and arise and get created and renewed. And then there are other times you're tuning into change where you're seeing everything fleeting go and away, moving, yeah. going away. And, you know, so those have very different feeling tones with, with us. And, um, you know, that's for sure. I always feel like, and it's so true when you think about it that way, how you can look at change and it will evoke different emotions. But for me, always the overall, like when I'm really sitting back and looking at it, I find it really relieving mm -hmm. and very, um, that no matter what happens with anything, it's always going to be okay because you never know what's going to happen no matter how hard you want to map something mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. or try. We really, truly don't ever know mm -hmm. what it's going to look like, whether it be a relationship, whether it's a business, whether it's success, whether it's anything, your health. I mean, none of us know the day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. um, as secure as we may feel in it in the mm -hmm. moment, it means nothing. So that, for me, has given me a lot of permission of taking chances mm -hmm. um, and not and kind of eliminating what I think for some people is like fear that really holds them down. It's really helped me not get mm -hmm. shackled by mm -hmm. fear. Just the feeling of like, well, I don't know anyway, so what's the worst that can happen? Mm -hmm. But it's, it is an interesting concept. Yeah. But so when you're talking about we're all connected... And, and 
you know, there's a version of like the woo woo, which I know is not necessarily where you come from, mm -hmm. but that, you know, would talk about like, oh, the universe, like I, you know, the universe was calling or telling me this or I could feel it. Um, however, like I'm assuming from your background, you believe in karma. Yes. Right. As I mean, yeah, I no. mean, uh, the word is complicated. So no, let's talk about it. And that's actually talk to me about what's complicated about it. Actually, that's interesting. Well, I mean, uh, I don't think the way most people use it is proper is proper, you know, but because the Buddha said it's impossible to understand with the rational mind. Mm -hmm. So that's a clue. You know, right. that we keep we think it's pretty um, precise. You know, I kicked a dog in a previous life and that's why my knee hurts right yeah you no know? i don't but yes that's true yeah. it is like i saved someone here so now yeah. i get blank right yeah so it's not usually exactly i think a equals b the the intuitions we get or the hints we get are more like um what we do matters that's consequential and that the intention behind our actions also matters but you know it it can easily lend to judgment and victim blaming and all kinds of things that I don't think are part of the package actually. Right. But but we bring them in. So and so for you when you look at your belief system kind mm -hmm. of in relation to like a woo-woo spirituality, where do you think they intersect? Uh no one ever calls me woo-woo. That's what I'm saying. I don't you know, think like you're woo-woo. I'm a New Yorker. You know? No, that's what I'm saying. No, that's exactly what I'm saying. I wouldn't look at yeah, you this no, way. I know, but when I you're know. looking in that version. Well, what are you calling woo-woo? I mean, you know, to me, it's people who are always like, oh, I hear the universe, or it's, you know, we're all connected, which is what you're saying. To me, they're all very similar. It's just different languaging, as mm -hmm. kind of what you were talking earlier. So I kind of love when I'm talking to people that are not considered certain ways kind of t talking because I do feel like there's something really beautiful and inherent in the fact that is it all the same but with different you know each lineage has its own way of conveying something or no would you say no I mean that's really I'd my question no. is yeah, okay no. can you elaborate on that a little well I don't know every lineage you know and I don't practice in every lineage so I can't right. really say no from but there are things that maybe there are certain views that I don't think are necessarily the same right you know and so um there are other times, on the other hand, where, uh, the, you know, you just get this kind of sense that, oh, they're saying this in completely opposite language, but it feels the same. Right. You know, that's different. And how much do you believe in things happen for a reason, or how much of it is your own creation, or things maps out ahead of time? Well, I don't necessarily use that language, but I don't think it matters. You know, it's like... Um, the real question is, what's the personal effect on you from having that belief? You know, like I would never say it's God's will, for example. It's right. just, you know, uh, both I, I don't tend to use the word God, and, you know, it's not a, a conceptualization that I would use. But do some people find it helpful and give them peace and energy to go on? Yes. You know, I think that's great. Right. You know, for other people, um, I mean, a big question whether it's karma or God's will. Are you saying it to yourself or are you saying it to someone else? Right. You know, like if you're right. giving someone a lecture in their time of complete distress, I don't think that's that wise, you know? Right. Um, you know, so I'm mean, Joseph Goldstein wrote a book called One Dharma a long time ago. We'd gone to India. He had been in India, um, you know, long before I. And uh, so he studied with, with Burmese teachers or people who had studied in Burma for probably seven or eight years when he come back and started teaching. And 
some point we went to Asia again, and uh, we started studying with these Tibetan teachers, which had a very different cosmology and metaphysics and um, way of expressing things, some different practices, some same practices. And Joseph went through a period of real torment, like which is true. Right. You know, and how did who you, do you feel? Believe, what do you do? I, I felt uh, much less torn than he. You know, I just felt um, to the degree they were not so different. There were things that I had experienced in my practice earlier on that I didn't so much have the words for, and then here were the words, you know. So they felt closer to me than to him, and to him it was a real battle. Uh, and then he decided that um, one way of looking at it is that the metaphysics were not being presented as a kind of absolute truth. They were presented as tools. If you saw the world in a certain way, maybe it helped you let go. Right. And that was the whole point, was the I letting go. You know? And so um, it's a nice small book. His last book was really big. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, and that's sort of how I tend to see it is like, if the um, use of a certain framework makes you feel more um, rigid and isolated and shunning others, that's not that helpful. If the use of that framework helps you feel more compassionate toward yourself and others, that's pretty helpful. I love that answer. So in, in that space, I mean, can we, I would love to talk a little bit about kind of your history and how you mm -hmm. got into meditation and from where it all started. You you know, talking about suffering and Buddhism, you had like a really rocky <laughs> childhood to say the least. It did, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I would love for you to talk about it a little bit because I do think for anyone listening, you mm -hmm. know, everyone always assumes that anyone who's teaching this stuff, like it's, life's just been easy. Or I always say people who are happy, people assume nothing's bad ever happened to them. And so I think it's always really amazing to just make people feel mm -hmm. they're not alone. Yeah, well, um, I'm also surprised at the last thing you just said because well some of it depends you know it's like my generation which is getting older <laughs> um you know when I said I went to India uh when I was 18 that's crazy it was crazy and I had never even been to California before you know so it's all start in India but, uh, <laughs> most of the people I knew not everybody you know because people were there for different circumstances like a bunch of people like um Joseph uh, in India, Jack, Cornfield in Thailand had been in the Peace Corps, you know, and so there was just a kind of exposure to something very, very different. Uh, but most people were there because of tremendous suffering of some kind, because mm -hmm. it was a leap, you know, yeah. it was like a big thing something to do. Had to drive, yeah, drive you something there. had to drive you there, and it's different now because it's so much more available, it's so much more accessible. You don't necessarily have to have such grave, you know, trauma. In, in your life, um, although, of course, some people still do, and that's what's what's driving them, but uh, there is a difference. And so if you talk yeah. to anybody who went to India around when I went to India, they would all say something. You know, when my parents got divorced, or the, you know, this happened, or, you know. Right. Um, so uh, my parents did get divorced when I was four, and then my father just disappeared, and I lived with my mother, and then she died when I was nine. And, uh, kind and she of died cascaded. suddenly, right? Yeah, there was she no died sickness. suddenly. Uh, well, you know, this is also many years ago. So who so, knows, yeah. right? But um, none that you were aware of is my point. Like for you, it was... Yeah, yeah. And how old were you then? I was nine. Oof. You know, so... Um, and then I lived with my father's parents 
Were you close to them? No, no, I hardly knew them because I, you know, I'd been living with my mother, and there had been the divorce. And so, how did you end up with them versus well, like there was someone nobody else? Her, her family was not around. Uh, she had siblings, but they just weren't. You Couldn't know, do it. yeah. I mean, I don't know what discussions they had amongst right. themselves, but um, I lived with my uh, grandparents for a couple of years, and then my grandfather died, and my father came back. This is his father, and. He was back just about six weeks, and he took an overdose of sleeping pills, and he didn't die, but he entered the mental health system, which he never actually left for the right. rest of his life, which was, you know, considerable length. And, um, and then when I was 16, I went to college. So for a second, because I want to know how you got to college at 16, because that's really young, <laughs> but how, what kind of child were you? Like, how did this stuff manifest? Like, were you... Like, how was it for you? Did you relate to other kids? Did you have friends? Like, did I mean, you, were I you very inward? Like, how did it all manifest? Yeah, for I mean, you? I was very inward, and I think there was, you know, um, probably in terms of, I mean, this is a spiritual answer. I was waiting. I mean, I knew there was something else. Did you know it? Like, did I you did. feel I it? I did know it. And I don't know why I knew it, you know, but I knew there was something else, and um, I was waiting. But that's amazing because I yeah. feel like some people could get destroyed in moments. But you had this yeah. weird yeah. faith of you didn't know what, but you yeah, had yeah. some faith in something. Yeah, yeah, I did. Wow. And so is there anyone from like, did you ever, were you close? Like, is anyone around, were you close to anyone? Did you form any strong ties like from that period of your life? Or was it really just kind of? Um, you know, not that I really remember, although, you know, I was teaching, I think it was Berkeley not too long ago. And that, all of this is in, well, it's in several of my books, but mostly in this it's book, Faith. Faith. Yeah, it's great. And thank you. And uh, somebody just stood up in the audience and said to me, who loved you? Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's you know, And I said, I, someone must have, you know, but it almost was like that knowledge was that there was love, you know, somewhere. You knew it. I knew it. I just knew it. So 16, how did you get to college at 16? Uh, well, I was a product of the New York City public school system, which yeah, <laughs> had people out. skip grades. So I skipped fourth grade. No, I skipped third grade, I think. I skipped third grade and I skipped eighth grade. So when you got to college and you went upstate New York, right? Yeah. Um, like, what, like, where were you at at this point? Like, were you, I, for my instinct is you weren't the typical kid, like, entering your freshman year of college. Like, super excited and happy. I feel like, what, what did you want to get out of college? Did you have any personal goals? Was there something, did, were you still very much inward or on your own? Like, what was it like for you in the beginning? No, I mean, I had friends, and it was a certain era. You know, I went to college in, like, 1968. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can remember... Um, it wouldn't have been my freshman year. I can't exactly remember either, yeah. but uh, the musical Hair came out, and we were, yep. I was in someone's dorm room, and we were playing... Uh, so probably it was a freshman, because it was in a dorm, and uh, they were playing the album, and it's where I heard Hare Krishna for the first time, and I was like, that was bliss. I was just filled with bliss. I thought, what's that? So you things know? were talking to you. Yeah, but, you know, I was... Um, I was I was both, you know, probably extremely depressed on one level, and and there was just some knowing that I just had to keep going, and uh, I would find it, and then, and then there was the class, you know, when I was a sophomore, 
which was very specific, and then I took an Asian philosophy class, and which was really about Buddhism, and then there it was. And was that random? Yeah, it was quite random. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was just per chance you'd signed up for the well, class. Yeah, know? I mean, I had a, um, a philosophy requirement, as we did, you know, and uh, so I had to choose some philosophy class, and right. I'll do that one. And that's when you got introduced to Buddhism for the first time. Yeah. And so then I know you did, you went to India, as you said earlier, for your junior year. You created that curriculum for yourself, correct? But why India? Like, because even with Buddhism, there's so many places. Isn't that odd? Yeah. That's why, I mean, I've always been like, why'd you choose India? I think it was ignorance. I, I didn't realize that India hadn't been a Buddhist country for like <laughs> 2,000 years or something. You know, like really, it was just like, it, it was just, I don't know. Again. I love how we started this with the whole spiritual, non-spiritual thing. By the end, yes. you're going to be walking out going, la, 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 la. <laughs> I'm so woo-woo. No. Everyone says that about me all the time. You're going to be relabeled. So I love it. We're relabeling you. Hey, sorry for the interruption. I want to talk about the next Den Talks Live. So if you haven't been to one, please come. It's going to be Thursday, March 14th at 7.30 p.m. at our La Brea location. We have Nick Vile. Most people know him as The Bachelor. He's been on Bachelor in Paradise. He's been on The Bachelorette. And then, of course, The Bachelor himself. But he's also a guy who's been struggling with anxiety. And in order to combat that, started using essential oils. He's now the co-founder of Natural Habits, which is an essential oil company. We get into all of that, what it's like to have anxiety. Imagine having anxiety and being on a show like that. We are going to talk about it at all. Again, like always, there's a Q&A, a chance to socialize at the end of it, and I'm sure we will have some fun giveaways. So please come, go to denmeditation.com or dentalkspodcast.com, reserve your spot. Again, it's Thursday, March 14th at 7.30 p.m. See you there. you guys just a quick note because we do get asked all the time what are other things we can do we have so many certifications so if you're in the area and want to come and do some live you should really check out our certifications we have our big one that is a 400 hour teacher training certification that is incredible not only if you don't want to be a teacher but if you just want to go deeper in your meditation practice where you learn about all lineages we have all the reikis one two three and master we do intuitive healing which is a longer program about learning how to read people intuitively and do readings we also have an animal communications and a self-compassion so many. My point is, check it out. There's ways to dig deeper into your practice. There's ways to get certifications. Go to denmeditation.com and take a look. Um, wait, so that's interesting. So again, another random choice was mm -hmm. India, and you went there, and, and you kind of alluded to this earlier. Was it hard for you to find something you resonated with because you are mm -hmm. in a country with many different practices and lineages? Yeah, I mean... Um it was hard in some ways. It wasn't exactly that I didn't resonate because uh, even then, before I started practicing, I met uh, there's some incredible teachers, and um, some of it was circumstance. You know, um, I'd be in a place and they'd have a meditation class, and uh, but then you know the translator would often be gone, or you know it would just be right. like it wasn't quite working. And some of it was that I had a, a real. I was very keyed into the idea of something very pragmatic, you know, and, and there were a lot of opportunities that were probably wonderful and wonderful for someone else, you know. Right. Um, or wonderful for me later. What was a game changer for you? Like, what was a moment where you felt something click? Uh, the first night of my first retreat. It's like, however hard things were, physically or emotionally, I just felt like there's truth here, you know something very, very true here and something good for me. And I just stayed. And then how long was that? 
Um, that was many months because uh, the teacher was going and he was teaching 10-day retreats. But he was teaching a lot of them in a row with maybe two or three days in between sometimes. And uh, so I stayed for months just doing 10-day retreats. So let's talk about your teacher, Deepa Ma, who I know mm-hmm. you give so much credit for, for becoming a teacher. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, she was one who suffered immensely as well. Do you feel like you needed that for, like, the teacher to really shift you? You needed someone that you could see understood what suffering really was since you had suffered so much in your childhood? Um, like, do you possibly. Feel like you chose her for a reason? Again, back to the... <laughs> uh, um, possibly, you know. Um, they all talked about suffering a lot, mm-hmm. you know, because it was so intrinsic to the path. It's like, um, this is a part of life. You need to be able to look at this. And uh, everyone experiences this. You're not so alone, you know. So uh, every day, and I kept thinking, they talk about suffering all the time, and they're like the happiest people I've ever seen, you know. I always say that about Buddhism, too. I'm yes. like, talk about languaging. Yeah. I find it interesting that that is the language, because saying that word enough times can actually make you feel a little <laughs> low. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, not me. <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> um, so it's also perspective. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and Goenka, you know, the um, the nature of Asian culture uh, is such that not everyone is very self-disclosing. Right. You know, uh, but we all knew about her life, you know, which was really hard. But even Goenka would talk about he got into practice because he had migraines, you know, and he was sort of unremitting and he had temper fits and things like that. And, you know, so it wasn't assumed that you got into it because you had a, a detached curiosity about the nature of life, you know. Right. But she, her, I mean, she lost kids and husband mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, was, yeah. I mean, it felt like it was very expensive. Experience, you know, dealing with something. You yeah, know, the, it was huge. The cards, like you're given a certain hand of cards. Yeah, yeah. And she, so she was your teacher for a long time. And yeah. so do you feel like she kind of changed things for you or she just came in at the right time? Uh, well, I mean, what she most notably perhaps changed for me is that she told me to teach. So when after you started teaching, like, what did she say? Did you guys ever mention it again? <laughs> Or was it just kind of like that? No, we (laughs) mentioned it again. But she came, you know, we, um, you know, Joseph and I, uh, I I heard Joseph was in Boulder at Neuropa Institute. Jack was living down the um, hallway, but I hadn't known him, you know, that's where we met. And then Joseph and I stayed on, did that, taught that retreat, that month-long retreat. And then we kept getting invitations, not every day, you know, but now and then. So it's like the flashback episode of like friends. I yeah. Like, would you would you come teach a ten day retreat and get together a cook and some friends, you know, like, okay. So it was either Jack and Joseph or Joseph and I or Jack and you know, so it was right. some combination. There were about four or five of us who were who were teaching. And uh in between it's like we had nothing. We were just sleeping on people's couches in their living rooms. And um we have a friend, um he was a new friend. And we were often in his living room, and I think out of self-defense, one day he said to us, you know, I have this rental property down near Santa Cruz, <laughs> California. Why don't you go stay there? <laughs> so we moved there, and uh, we opened it up as a retreat center because that was like the life. We knew there might be two extra bedrooms or something like that. And we said, if you want to do a retreat, we'll cook for you and we'll take care of you. And, you know, so 
uh, this guy came through who was writing a book and he needed a place like that. And he um, he said, you know, why don't you start a real retreat center? And uh, he said, I know just the people who can help you. They're all in Massachusetts. And he was right there, too, you know. So wow. I'd never been to Massachusetts before, so we went to Massachusetts. Who was the guy who was writing the book? Like, who connected you guys? Uh, I think people, you know, it was this... It was a smaller world then. I mean, there's no... No, but I mean, like, who... Do you remember his name? The guy who... Yeah, of course. Yeah, I know his name, but I don't know how he... Right, right, right. You know, but we were all like, you know, like, there was no internet in some ways. Like, you had to rely on word of mouth for yeah. everything, you know? Like, somebody just asked me yesterday or something, like, I'm going to India, where should I go? And I, th I thought, well, you could either Google it, you know, like, know. meditation retreat, or just talk to people, you know, because they'll say to you, I just... I just had this incredible experience, and you can go there. And but I love that this guy, you're in Southern California, right? Yeah. And, uh, and this it's not Southern, but it's oh, mid. Yeah. Sorry, mid-California, and he brought you all the way back to well, he, Massachusetts, he, yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. Amazing. And they were the right people. You know, they formed a board of drugs. We didn't know anything, you know, like, that's what's more mortgage? You know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we ended up buying this property, which is still there and flourishing, the Insight Meditation Society, and, you know, created a... A scene, you know, that, that didn't really exist here yet. It's incredible. Yeah. So it's funny. It's like you give her so much kind of... I mean, it is amazing to see where you've gone. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you had... What did you think you were going to do? Or did you have no... Like, did you ever, like, as a kid, have, like, I'm going to do this when I'm older? Uh, I thought I wanted to be a writer. Well, so you're doing that. Yeah, I am doing that. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that took a while, too. But, you know, like, Deepa Ma came to Barry. She came to IMS several times. So she Must saw so the proud. sort of flourishing of it you know it's amazing that really is amazing tell me like a moment that you or maybe there isn't one that you've doubted your practice there hasn't been one not one no I've doubted other things I've doubted myself like can I really do this or I've doubted which practice to do you know like in some kind of torment of right you know should I do this should I do that should you I always had faith in that practice yeah. yeah can you talk about moments where like what you're just saying now that your practice was hard for you. Like, for oh, instance, yeah. in Kundalini, we call it, like, Shaktipad, where it's, like, that moment where yeah. you almost don't want to do it, you can't do it, you're fighting it. Yeah. Like, do you have those moments? Uh, many versions of that, yeah, sure. Do you remember, like, your first? Was it confusing? Um, I don't know that I remember my first, and I don't know that it's confusing either because, uh, you know, I always had teachers. Uh, well, not always, but, you know. And a lot depends on the framework, you know, of, um, like Goenka, for example, worked very much in this framework of purification. So from his point of view, the worse you felt, the better you were doing. Because <laughs> it's like all the stuff, is, all yeah. stuff is like pouring out of you, you know. It's working. It's working. And it was like he, rather inelegantly, but, uh, you know, he'd use the example of vomiting. He said, just vomit it out. You know, don't like examine it, you know, like, right. just like let, let it, it out, let, let it go. go. You know, and that was so much uh, in the very architecture of what he was creating that you didn't feel, like, ashamed and freaked out and, you know, everyone's doing better than me unless you went there, you know, instead of accepting his framework. And, um, you know, there were many times when I felt ashamed and freaked out and thought everyone was doing better than I. Or, uh, but you kept on. Yeah, I kept on. So that's the key. Keep yeah. on keeping yeah, yeah. on. Yeah. How, um, like, talk about loving kindness. I mean, I've, you wrote your book, Loving Kindness. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of who you are. Yeah. Why loving kindness for you? What connected you to it? 
And can you talk a little bit about that? And also, sure. can you explain, I know this might be a dumb question, but the difference of loving kindness and compassion? Yeah. It's not a dumb question. Um, well, you know, I started my practice with going on these 10-day courses, and they were all a kind of mindfulness, especially about the body. And um, at the very end, almost as a kind of ceremonial goodbye, he he led us in a loving kindness meditation. And so it was really just like brief, and it was... Uh, you know, it was not explained in depth, and it was just an experience. It was, okay, here we are. Um, but I heard it, you know, that first time, and I thought, ooh, what's that? It just connected with it you. It just connected with me. I mean, clearly, you know, I had, uh, somebody asked me once, um, who was interviewing me in a very um, timid kind of way, like, do you think you reparented yourself with Deepama? And I said, I reparented myself with all of them. Yeah. You know, it was just the nature of it. And so the relationship was very important for me with each teacher. And But the fact that there was a method that the implication was you could grow in this, that it wasn't that some people had it and some people didn't, and, you know, that you really could grow. You and, could and learn you it. You could learn it. You could cultivate it. So um, I kind of explored it. I studied it, but I didn't have a teacher who was going to really take me through it step by step. And... Um, finally, in 1984, we brought this Burmese teacher, this monk named Saira Upadita, to IMS to teach a three-month retreat, um, which I sat with him. And I went to Burma the next year, and he became my loving kindness teacher. So it was 1985. Wow. And I, it was hugely important for me, and a lot of change and transformation. And I came back, and I started teaching it right away. Uh, but it was only like, 10 years later, really, that the book came out, Loving Kindness. What did Loving Kindness do for you? Like, how did it change your relationships? Or Well, I think that, um, I mean, the example of my not being able to do public speaking was kind of typical. And that classically, they say the Buddha taught loving kindness is the antidote to fear. And that's what I really found. You know, that if the predominant sort of um, psychological bases of my actions and my choices was fear, which it was, uh, that began getting replaced with a sense of connection. And one of the things I appreciated the most about it is that there was nothing phony about it. It wasn't like, you know, I have to give myself a lecture. Like, you know, you just did that whole workshop on loving kindness. Surely you should be. It just, things began changing. Right. It's funny because like, and I've heard you say this too, like, it sounds like it could be schmaltzy, but it really is just all about you. There is yeah. nothing phony. You're the one who has to yeah. do it. Yeah. You know, you give yourself loving kindness, you give someone else, and then someone you actually yeah. dislike or are having problems with, yeah, yeah. which is challenging. You don't realize how challenging that is. But in some ways, do you feel like it's, you know, kind of training yourself how to be positive? Yeah. So, you know, how they say gratitude helps with happiness. Yeah, the more you yeah. like, can do a gratitude list, the less you'll pay attention to yeah, or yeah. dwell on the other stuff. How? So do you feel like love, since it's trainable, that any relationship can work if you want it to? Uh, I think no, not in the sense perhaps in which you're using the word work, you know. If two people of any type of relationship um, really do the work and the practice, can one have a solid relationship? Uh, I'm still going to ask what do you mean by sure. a solid relationship? I mean, I know that's a fair question. I I one of, let, me, let me put it this way. One of the features of loving kindness, as far as I understand it, is that it's a heart space. It's a field of intention. It's not mandating a certain action. Right. 
you know, so you might cultivate um, and genuinely start to have enormous loving kindness or compassion. I'll explain that in a minute, the difference uh, for someone. But you might decide, you know what? Uh, it's not safe to see them. You know, it's not wise to have a personal encounter with them. Um, this doesn't mean I have to say yes. It doesn't mean I have to smile. It doesn't mean I have to, you know, not have boundaries. And right. Well, those are all the things we assume. Can we talk about that codependency and love yeah. a little bit? Because I always find that to be a fascinating area, which I know you're just touching on right now. How, you know, and what comes first, the chicken and the egg? Is it self-love before you can truly love someone else? Or is it like we were saying, the act of learning to love someone else can actually then become inward? I think it could go in either direction, except what often happens is that um, love for oneself is too uh, embarrassing a notion. It's like, yeah. that'll make me selfish, that'll make me narcissistic, you know? And so uh, people tend to give to others and care about others, and then they burn out, you know, because it's too much. Right. Uh, or it's too uneven, it's, you know, it's too unbalanced, and so... Is that um, where the self-love comes in? That's when you can see it more clearly? Yeah. You know, like if you have uh, a certain amount, if you just remember you count too and that you need to be included in that, then you're less likely to burn, to, to burn out. And at some point you have to include yourself very fully, but not necessarily right away. I don't really believe you have to love yourself fully in order to love someone else. I just think it gets distorted after a while. Do you feel... Interesting. So you have the ability to love, but you might not be able to sustain. Yeah, yeah. And you can sustain if you can learn to love yourself. Yeah, and yeah, then that's the yeah. all-loving being-ish. You can be that if you can love yourself. But it's yeah, hard. Yeah. yeah it's, it's hard to hard. learn to like love all facets of yourself. Sometimes yeah, you don't even hard. realize there's facets you didn't even know yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. That's really, that's interesting. And so that actually explains a lot with codependency, too, why people have the notion of just diving in deep and not extricating mm -hmm. with love. Like yeah. that can be loving too, is extricating yourself. That's right. Huh. You mm -hmm. said somewhere, and I might be getting this wrong, that self-respect, which I kind of equate with self-love, but maybe those are different. You can clarify for me, but self-respect is the key to happiness. I like that. <laughs> I, hope, <laughs> I hope I said it. It, it was you. Um <laughs> You could say that. I mean, I don't know if it's the key to happiness, but if I said it, I must mean it. Um, <laughs> but um, if you look at... No, what's coming up in my mind is really the question of faith. And it was a little tricky writing that book, you know, because so many people dislike the word. They dislike the institutions they maybe grew up in. Right. And people would say to me, why are you doing that? You know, because for them, faith meant... Um, being silenced and not, and losing self-respect and just buying into someone else's vision of what's true. And, of course, it's very different for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't, you know, have cared to write a book on it. Um, and it's more a sense of, you know, you have to be able to question. You have to be able to doubt. You have to be able to find out for yourself and trust your experience, your own experience. And so, like, having that respect in your own capacity to understand life is kind of like the bottom line. Otherwise, you wouldn't practice. You know, right. you would just thank the Buddha for having practiced or something, you know, right. or someone else for having practiced. But you wouldn't feel like, oh, I need to do it. I need to see for myself. And so uh, there's a certain way in which, um, because of people's, you know, often very tough experiences or 
or whatever, you know, we think, well, that's the thing you lose as you go on in a spiritual context. But I think you actually gain it. I think it grows and grows. I think so. I think the more you meditate or have your own practice, the relationship just mm-hmm. grows so mm-hmm. deep. So mm-hmm. like anything, you it's, yeah, you just have faith. You know it's going to be okay. Even yeah. like you said, yeah. those bad days, you yeah. know that yeah. there's going to be a good yeah. day around the corner. Yeah. That's... That's, I'm actually, now I'm noodling. So some, another question might come up in a second about oh, I that. have to tell you, please, m- my interpretation of the difference between loving kindness and compassion. Yes. Because um, I, I get confused. And I know yeah. there's, there's separate entity, there's separate lines, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and it's easy to get confused because in English we use them synonymously. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in certain contexts, like, um, it wasn't the book Loving Kindness, but some book I was writing... Uh, they asked me to replace every usage of loving kindness with compassion because oh no one in the editorial department <laughs> knew what I meant, but you know they were laughing. Uh, You're like, I actually can't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know they're very similar and and they they support one another, so it's easy to understand them as one. But um, there are also some distinctions. So when those qualities are talked about, uh, like loving kindness or compassion. Um, they're usually talked about in the model, uh, including like what's its biggest challenge. You know, like what does it look like when it's weird? You know, when it's not actually the thing itself anymore, but it's gotten a little weird. Okay. Um, so that's like what's called the near enemy. The far enemy is the total opposite. Like you'd never can you use an it. example. Yeah, well, I will in a minute. Oh, great. So the far enemy is um, the total opposite. So you would never confuse the state you're trying to develop with the far enemy. But the near enemy is close enough so that you could get confused. So, um, and the other thing they talk about is what they call the proximate cause, which is the nearest arising condition. It's like this, the, the I have very... questions about that, too. Okay, the very ready <laughs> springboard. Not the only springboard, but if you can put this in place, it's much easier to get that state right. to develop. So loving-kindness... Um, I would define as comp- as connection. You know, it's it's a profound knowledge that our lives are connected. Uh, it doesn't mean you like somebody, and it doesn't mean you approve of them. It doesn't mean you're ever going to have dinner with them. But you know, our lives really are connected, and and we um, all exist, and we all exist, and and we all want to be happy. And the force that keeps us from being happy is ignorance, because. We just buy into something about where happiness is that has to do with... It has to look a certain way. Yeah, and we have to put down others, and we have to, you know, whatever it might mean. So um, the literal translation of the word in Pali, which is language of the original Buddhist text, is friendship, but I tend not to use friendship because it um, implies, to me, going out to dinner or going to the movies and... Having to get along. Yeah, and spend time together, and it's, it's very different than that. So loving kindness is the usual translation, uh, but I tend to say connection. So the far enemy of loving kindness is aversion, which is anger or fear. It's like totally the opposite state, energetically and in every way. So you wouldn't really confuse those. The near enemy is what is usually called attachment. Like, may you be happy by tomorrow night, (laughs) you know, because... I have a lot of people to help make happy, and you're at the top of the list now, but you won't be forever. And 
And speaking of lists, here's your list of everything you need to change in your life so that you're happy. happy. You know, so it's got an edge that's very different than one of the ways these practices, these states are talked about is the states of generosity. So it's like giving with a lot of strings attached Mm -hmm. compared to like maybe happy. Just because. Yeah, just giving, you know. Um, So that's the near and far enemy. And the proximate cause of loving kindness is it's twofold. One is it's like either seeing the good in someone, even if it's like a little sliver, you know, uh, we feel a sense of connection. And from that place, we can look at what's difficult and what's hard, but it's not like this alien being, you know, mm-hmm. way over there. And sometimes it's impossible. It's just not going to happen. And so the proximate cause becomes recognizing that everybody wants to be happy, that we actually do share that. And see what happens with that reflection. So compassion is, um, one friend of mine once called it love in the face of suffering. <laughs> you know, you're not looking at so much the f- idea that everybody wants to be happy, but you're looking at the vulnerability we all have. You know, it's not that we all have the same measure of pain, because we don't, but right. we're so vulnerable, you know? Like, um, you know, I slipped getting out of the car here. I almost cracked my head open. You know, that would have been so a bad you. interview. <laughs> you know, uh you know, we're so vulnerable, like, uh, you know, life is just so complex and so many things, and, you know, you miss the plane, and then you miss the job interview, and then you miss, you know, like, and, and so there's just a feeling, you know, like, of not being alone in that. Yeah. Um, and your heart moving in response to that. So compassion is sometimes defined as the quivering or the troubling of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering, and it's a movement of the heart toward to see if we can be of help. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Mm. Uh, And the near enemy is an interesting state. It's talked about in different ways. The definition that has meant the most to me is um, uh, we would probably call it burnout. You know, it's like you see the suffering you're moved to try to respond and you're overwhelmed, you're exhausted, you feel broken, you feel you've got nothing left to give, you know? So it's kind of like compassion, but it's not really. Right. Um, And so that's, they have different flavors, loving kindness and compassion. And how do they live in the world today? Like everything you're saying, I relate to. And in some ways it's like you're giving the benefits of the doubt to everyone in all situations of hoping that Mm -hmm. everyone's coming from goodness. But how do we do that in a world of like people seeking justice? Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of that. So how do how do people, and also in the world of like our political situation, people get so angry about people's points of view. So how can you, how does it reconcile? Like, and I know you're saying a little bit is you don't have to be friends with people. That's mm-hmm. not what it's about. So how can you reconcile and live in a state where we all see things so very, in this, in this country, we see things so differently. But also, like, even, like, with the Me Too movement, not to get too specific, but different degrees of things that have happened and, like, people losing their jobs and their livelihoods. There's, like, a sense of justice happening right now, making sure people pay for their acts. Like, how does all that reconcile? Well, you know, I would be very hesitant to tell people what to feel, you know? Absolutely. And uh, how to respond to real harm done, you know? Um, But I think, you know, the things we learn about what we want to pursue and what we want to 
I guess, let go of in terms of, you know, uh, what we're cultivating. Um, it comes from our own observation. You know, it's like uh, many of us are taught that loving kindness is weak. It's sentimental, it's stupid, that um, vengeance is strong, you know. Right, like you don't have a point of view, you don't care. Yeah, you're right. You know, vengefulness is strong. And, uh, but take a look. Never gets you anywhere. You know, Just like... It's a constant cycle of suffering. Yeah, and it's only we that can tell. I mean, I think it's really... Uh, it's crude and stupid to tell someone what they should be feeling. You know, like, you've been through this experience, but you should let go, you know, like, that's not my job, really. Um, but, you know, like, I have a friend who would describe, does describe himself as kind of like um, an obsessive type of person, and I think that's accurate. And I always <laughs> want to caution people. I don't say nasty things about my friends without them knowing it. You know? saying, like, yeah. Um, you know, but he would say that about himself, and and it's true. And he got into one of those things. It wasn't like personal harm, so it wasn't like a a me too thing. But he um, he got into one of those things where you get obsessed with someone else's faults, and he just went through them in his head and through them and through them and through them and through them. And finally, he said, "I think there's an AA saying." He said something like, "I let him live rent free in my brain for too long." Yeah. You know, and you realize like it's been a long time, and all I do is think about him, and it's so how much wretched energy. he is, and it's so much energy, and it's my energy. Yeah, that I've they're not fine. Lost. They don't even realize like they That's don't right. care. That's right. They don't care. <laughs> you know, so um, it's through mindfulness, it's through awareness, and seeing. Oh, you know, I just spent an hour and a half like caring about this person, caring about this person who I can't control, and I'd rather not be thinking about him endlessly. Right. You know, then there's work to be done, and because it doesn't mean dishonoring your feeling or your your sense of right and wrong or you know whatever. But take a look. But that's interesting. Can you <clears throat> excuse me? Taking that one step further, so you have this feeling. One has a feeling of right versus wrong, whatever that means for them, as it changes for everyone. And again, and I know it's what you were talking about, but if you can just explain it a little bit more, the act of still being able to hold on to what you think is right versus wrong, but letting go of someone else having to perform that way. Or, you know, if it's something that's been done to you that was clearly in your mind and probably maybe many people's mind wrong, how can you let go of that and not need the vengeance, like you said, or the justice and let it be? Like, what are some of the processes people can do? Well, you know, all these things are very complex issues. Like, what does forgiveness mean? You know, like, uh, one of my friends, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, would say, forgiveness does not mean amnesia. You know, right. it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Maybe it matters really a lot. Um, but what's the consequence to me? Have I kind of given over my life? Am I now defined by that act of someone else, you know? Um or am I kind of in a, a creative mode about my life? Which might include many things. You know, there are lots of forms of restorative justice. Or, you know, maybe you do want to see someone in prison. Do you want to see them lose their livelihood? I don't know, you know. Right. But um, I think it's always wise to... In Tibetan Buddhism, they call it spy consciousness. It's not like you intensely scrutinize your state. But you just have a little bit of awareness. How is this affecting me? 
But I love that because I feel like it's what we started this conversation with, which is is your journey with yourself and yeah. it is your relationship with yourself. So even like the practical advice you could give someone about how to curb like, you know, we're in LA screaming at everyone, we're in New York screaming at everyone in traffic or, you know, just getting pissed off and reacting. And I know that is the whole process of mindfulness and meditation, but like things you can sense you know, when you talk about it, and you'll speak about it way better than me, it's not only, you know, recognizing you have it and sitting with it a little bit. It's not, like you said, denying it or putting it away. It's kind of processing it with yourself. There is that interesting notion of it's really about you in the long run. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that that person just totally ran the red light and almost killed you and hit you because ultimately, how does that matter for him? He's got his own relationship with that moment, but you have your relationship with it. So, like, process it for yourself. So even... Am, am I hitting on something there? Is that yeah, and, and sort of like, you know, uh, maybe it comes down to, you know, what what can we actually do and what's just like tormenting ourselves. Right. You know, because there are things... What's actually going to change. Yeah, what's going to make change to the best of our ability. And, you know, maybe it... Um, you know, then we look at our motive, you know. Are we, are we acting out of compassion for ourselves and other people? Or are we acting out of just sheer vengeance as, as a motive? Because that's going to make a difference in its effect on us. And then, you know, am I just spinning? Or am I seeking a change in legislation? Right. You know, that's for example. The you know, that's greater good. The greater good. And am I... Taking uh, the me and I out of yeah. meditation. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and so uh, there's effort. So I'm not, you know, wanting to imply there's nothing to be done. Right. But what are we doing? Are we just screaming and yelling, you know, or uh, adding one more tweet to the world, you know? <laughs> or are we actually saying, okay, what might make a change that's effective? I do love that. I do that often, too. I'm like, I kind of just go down the whole thing. Like, what really is going to change? What's really yeah. going to happen? So, And so often, my anger will go away right away because I realize there's zero point on this because what I think I can do with this anger, that's never going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, if I actually play the chess game out in my head, I'm like... Not like whatever weird result I want in my head is not going to happen regardless. So like, figure out how to like breathe through it and and get rid of it because mm -hmm. you're going to waste a lot of time for the same answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it is it's if you can have that ability, like you said, whether it's letting go of something or or creating something in a bigger positive mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. yeah, you will save a lot of time and mm -hmm. energy. What is, just just to get, well, actually, I do want to do when we're talking about proximate cause. It's interesting that you brought that up because it was a little confusing for me. But what you said, which cleared it, is they can be things that make the next step easier. But yeah, it's yeah. not necessary to be in that step. No, no. Because one of them for me was, it was happiness before concentration. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting because yeah. it, it feels implied that learning to meditate and learning how to have better concentration would actually lead you to happiness. Yeah, I mean, you could do that for sure. But what they mean by happiness... In that um, trajectory mm -hmm. is a kind of serenity that comes from not having a completely messed up, complicated life. Right. You know, so it's it's the happiness of a certain kind of moral or ethical um, centeredness. Because what they're saying is that you, you want to meditate, which doesn't mean having no thoughts or no feelings, but you need a certain stability in your awareness. Yeah. And if you are completely freaked out all the time, like what if they find out about that lie or, you know, cheating on my taxes and like it's tax season and you know what if I get arrested how shameful will that be and you know or you know uh whatever it is if you're in New York it would be my sublet is illegal right <laughs> you know, I'm like you know what if I get busted you know 
it's so it, you just made it much harder for yourself. Not impossible, but harder. But harder. That makes total sense. You know, we're so paranoid, and it's like you know, and then it all comes up anyway because you're looking within. There's a certain amount of introspection that brings up, like, oh, you know, I said that and I did that, and um, so you, it's going to be much harder to concentrate because you're not going to have that kind of happiness of like a clear conscience, right? That's what it means in that That direction. makes total sense. Yeah. Thank you for clearing yeah. that up. Yeah. Okay, let's do your four years, which are four quick takeaways for our audience. Um, we might have answered this already, but an inspirational teacher. Okay, well, let's choose Deepa Ma because she seems to be here. Okay. Um, like a piece of art, movie, documentary, theater, that your favorite? Uh, I'll say Hamilton because it changed my life. How did it change your life? I was working on my last book, or I shouldn't call it that, my most recent book, because uh, I don't want it to be my last book, <laughs> um, which was number 10. It was uh, Real Love. Oh and God, 10 um, books, that's so yeah. crazy. And I'm working on number 11, actually, but I was just in a really, really bad place, and I was discouraged, and I was late, and I thought, you know, it's your 10th book. Nobody cares what you have to say anymore. <laughs> just, oh. like, turn something in, and it was right then this friend in New York brought me to see Hamilton, and... Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was still in it. Um, and I kept looking at him thinking, you wrote this? Like, wow. And, and then I thought, you can never do that. You can never compromise that way and like put less than 100% of your effort into everything you do. So that's how it changed my life. I love that that inspired. That's amazing. Yeah, it's and by my way, grateful his, acknowledgments. His stuff is um, incredible. Yeah, like yeah. I remember seeing Into the Heights years ago. That's <laughs> for, and... I remember just it just changed the way yeah. I looked at everything. Yeah. Um, what type of meditation do you rely on the most? Probably loving kindness. That makes sense. So talk to me about your daily practice. What does it look like? Uh, I sit every day. Um, Same time? It depends. I mean, I travel so much. Right. And things get complicated. I try to sit in the morning because then it's done. And um, I try to sit. I mean, my goal would be like 40 minutes, but it's often could be 20. And 40 minutes, one meditation. Do you change it? Do you do the same meditation every day? Uh, no, I change it day to day, but I, do, you know, because they are slightly different. There are different methods between mindfulness and, and loving kindness, but, uh, and it depends on different periods. This period of my life, I mostly, actually, I do mindfulness more in my daily formal sitting, and I try to do loving kindness walking around. Or, you know, being in the airport or something like that. Now, that's interesting. So when you talk about, it's like there's mindfulness, loving kindness, and compassion. Would you feel like there, it makes sense? Like, I know you don't, no one likes to break things down super simply, but is there like either a certain personality type or something you're going through that one of those things would be more appropriate? I think probably it's intuitive, you know, like um, certainly with loving kindness, it's not only something you're going through, it could be something your friend's going through or... You know, it feels important that your meditation be that kind of generosity that's including your friend or something like yeah. that. I also feel like I tell people like a version of that, like when you're going through a breakup or you're really in a fight with someone, if you just, if you make that part of your routine, like I have a friend going through divorce and that mm -hmm. was literally my advice, make it part of your routine. Like I go, mm -hmm. it will change you like before yeah. you know it and it will help you get through the whole thing because your relationship with that yeah. person, even from afar, will completely change. Mm -hmm. So, um, and one question for me, because I know you answer this all the time, but we get it here all the time. I always get, I can't meditate. And I know you hear this all the time. I can't meditate. My mind's the one who can't do it. What did I get the other night? If you could help me meditate, you, you would win all the awards. Like people just really believe. What's your answer to that? I usually try to find out why um, 
what they think, well, either what their experience has been or why they think it's a problematic experience. And usually people say, I can't meditate because I can't wipe out thinking. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's not not the point. Yeah, Yeah, that's not the point. So it's kind of, you know, addressing those assumptions about things. And then people can always do a more active form, you know, uh, drinking a cup of tea or whatever. So that might be a better place for some people to start. I do love what you, you've said, and I use it often because I feel like it was so helpful. And for usually people that have the mindset they can't do it, it's kind of their personality of just equating it to going to the gym mm-hmm. where it's literally like the barbell rep That's is right. yeah. your meditation. You so I always tell people before they walk in, I'm like, even if you only bring it back for a split second and it goes away again, the fact that you even brought it back once, you just did the exercise. Yeah, that's right. And that, to me, like, really <coughs> clarified and really helped a way to explain to people why, like, it's okay to sit there with a very busy mind. Mm-hmm. Like, you're still mm-hmm. actually getting a lot out of it. Yeah, that's yeah. true. No, so thank you for that. Thank you for, A, this talk. You're so incredible. Nobody go away. She is, because we spoke about loving kindness so much. We'll do a personal practice about a 10-minute meditation on loving kindness your openness and just explaining so many things and you're such a fascinating human but like we all owe you so much Mm. so thank you for your gift to the world really thank you no it's true and it's been an honor for me to sit here with you today so thank you thank you loving kindness meditation in this practice We rest our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are the conduit or the guide for paying attention differently. We work with being inclusive rather than excluding, connected rather than alienated, caring rather than indifferent. The phrases need to be simple and general, because we'll offer these phrases to ourselves and to others, ending in the offering to all beings everywhere, to all of life. The phrases are an act of generosity. They're offering. They're gift-giving. It's a feeling tone of blessing. Common phrases beginning with oneself are things like, May I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. That last, live with ease, means in the things of day-to-day life, like livelihood and family, may not be such a struggle. May I live with ease. May I be safe. Be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Remember, this is a form of generosity. We're not pleading or imploring that maybe someday we might be happy. It's gift-giving. We're offering, instead of only focusing on what we don't like about ourselves or things we're afraid of, we're opening up to this whole other perspective of wishing well. The first recipient is ourselves, so you can sit comfortably, close your eyes or not, let your attention settle into your body.
Gather all of your attention behind one phrase at a time. You can use those four phrases I just suggested or phrases of your own. I'd say if you're not accustomed to this practice, for now, experiment with those phrases so you have some further time to think through what you might prefer to say or not. So again, what I suggested was, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. You can repeat these over and over again with enough space and enough silence so that it's a rhythm that's pleasing to you. This is like the song of the heart. It's not a practice where you have to try to force or manufacture a special feeling or emotion. The power of the practice comes from the complete wholehearted gathering of all of our attention behind one phrase at a time.
And when your attention does wander and you get distracted, don't worry about it. See if you can gently let go, bring your attention back. See if you can call to mind a benefactor. A benefactor is someone who's helped you. Maybe they've helped you directly. They've helped pick you up when you've fallen down. Or maybe you've never met them. They've inspired you from afar. This is known as the being whom when we think of them, we smile. It's like an embodiment of the force of love for us. Might be an adult, might be a child, might be a pet. Who just lifts our spirits, who makes us smile when we just think about them? So if there's someone like that who comes to mind, you can bring them here. Get an image of them. Say their name to yourself, get a feeling for their presence, and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. Even if the words don't seem perfect, that's okay. They're the vehicle for the heart's energy, so they're serving us. And if no benefactor comes to mind, you can just remain with the offering of loving kindness to yourself.
call to mind a friend, the first friend who comes up for you. See if you can get an image of them. Say their name to yourself. Get a feeling for their presence and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. And then a neutral person, that's someone we don't strongly like or dislike. We just feel kind of neutral about them. Maybe they play a sort of role in our lives, a checkout person in the supermarket, dry cleaner, somebody we tend to see now and then. And if someone like that comes to mind, bring them here. And see what happens as you offer the phrases of loving kindness to them.
and then a mildly difficult person, somebody with whom there's just a small amount of conflict or difficulty. Bring them here and see what happens as you offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. If even a mildly difficult person proves too challenging, that's all right. That's a good time to go back and offer loving kindness to yourself. And then finally, all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown, may all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and see if you can bring some of this spirit of attention and loving kindness throughout your day.
in any one session of this kind of practice. It certainly may not be possible to go through the entire rotation. So we say that the basic bookends are beginning with yourself and ending with all beings everywhere. And what you're moved to do on a particular day can always change. Maybe you have a friend who's getting an award that day, so you want to be sure to include them. Or a friend who's having surgery that day, so you want to be sure to include them. There's so many possibilities, and you can be creative and open to see what happens. Zen Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks podcast, and join us there.